Thank you, Dallas. We crown him Lord of all, don't we? Well, this has been and will be a very special service. We've received new members this morning. What a special event that is. At the end of the service, we'll also witness the immersion of souls into Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing that is to think about. But you know, you think about it this way, every time we come together, it's something special because we come together in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This past week as I was praying and praying and praying and asking God, what do you want our congregation to hear this coming Sunday? And every path down which my thoughts traveled, in every one of them, they dealt with the presence of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I think in obedience to the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about the abiding presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Carl Easton's favorite verse, I think, because he recites it so many times in prayers, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a wonderful promise. Now, several times in the Word of God, we find our Lord Jesus giving specific promises concerning his abiding presence. You recall that after his resurrection, he appeared to the apostles in the upper room and a week later again, and the women told them that Jesus had said they should go meet him in Galilee. He, they went to Galilee there. They went fishing, and you recall the encounter of Christ they had there. But then he told them to meet him on a particular mountain in Galilee, and they went to that mountain. And as they were there, John, or rather Matthew, the last three verses of his book, describes that event. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore, and disciple every nation, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. It's interesting that word we render, lo, is the Greek word edu. It's, it's an interjection. It's almost look, a surprise, or pay attention to what I'm saying. If you ever listen to Charles Stanley preach, he comes to the point, he says, now, uh, now look at this. <laughs> and that's what Jesus was saying. It's an interjection, an emphasis. Pay attention to what I'm saying. I will be with you always. What a promise. Last Sunday, the thorns stood where I'm standing today. And we prayed for them and commissioned them and released them to travel to Kurdistan to begin working with the Yazidi people, of people that have been so abused in the world. But you know what? We didn't just send them forth. Remember in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said to the leaders there, Release unto me, Saul and Barnabas, unto the work whereunto I have called them. We released them to follow that call. But when they got on that plane, Jesus was with them. When they arrived in Kurdistan, Jesus is with them. I will be with you always, even at the end of the age. The week before that, 
Nathan and Taylor and, of course, little Lottie. And we prayed and released them to head to Tajikistan. And they had this nonstop flight, but as they traveled, Jesus was with them. And he will be with them in Tajikistan. Listen to me. If you walk across the street to witness for Jesus Christ, he's with you. He promised it. If you travel across the globe to tell people about Jesus Christ, he is with you. He promised it. Anyone who goes forth to bring people into the kingdom of God and you do so intentionally, that's why you're going, he is with you. You're not just human beings out selling a bill of goods, but you're bringing the kingdom of God to people and he is with you. Now there's Carl's favorite verse, and let me read the context for you. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Interesting way that's expressed, isn't it? Regardless of what church tradition you come from, that tradition will recognize three of the early church leaders as church fathers, Polycarp, Clement, and Ignatius. Let me tell you about Polycarp. Polycarp was born in the year 69, the Church of Jesus Christ wasn't quite 40 years old when he was born. As a young man, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and John the Apostle took him under his wing and discipled him and taught him. John the Apostle died shortly before Polycarp was 30 years old. He settled in Smyrna. And the gospel began to slowly expand in that area. And because he had been taught by John the Apostle, the church looked to him to tell them whether or not all these teachings that were going about were really the truth or not. And so he could say, John said this, these people are saying that they're wrong. And the church looked to him to help them stay on the right track of truth and biblical, or rather, Bible wasn't really around then, but uh, orthodoxy. Well, the Christians in Smyrna refused to worship the Smyrnian gods. The people of Smyrna believed they had special gods over their city, and everybody who lived in that city was supposed to worship these gods and make sacrifices to them. If they didn't, the gods wouldn't bless them. But the Christians said, we can't do that. And in time, the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, became one of their gods. Whenever you hear Caesar Augustus, Augustus means divine. So he was viewed as a god. And the Christians would not worship Marcus Aurelius. As a matter of fact, the people of Smyrna called Christians atheists because they would not worship their gods. The proconsul of Smyrna one day said, 
we have to do something about these Christians. And so they sent officers to arrest Polycarp, who was the best-known Christian in the city, and he was 86 years old. Soldiers arrived at the house on their horses with weapons like they were coming after robbers. Polycarp was upstairs lying down in bed. Someone ran upstairs. Soldiers are here. You can escape. He chose not to escape. He said, God's will be done. He came downstairs. The soldiers were there. He greeted them. And then he served them a meal. He said, you men eat, will you, while I go pray? And so they ate. And he said he'd pray for an hour. He prayed for two hours. And came back and some of the soldiers said, what are we doing arresting a man like this? But they did so and they put him on a donkey and started for the arena in Smyrna. Let me read the account of an eyewitness. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. And hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheist. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing towards him, he said, Down with the atheist. Swears the proconsul. Reports Christ. I'll set you free. Eighty-six years have I served him, Polycarp declared. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I'll throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good. To turn to what is evil, I'll be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I'll have you burned. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Where are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. It was all done in the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood, bundles of sticks from shops and public baths, and when the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer garments and undid his belt. But when they went to fix him to the stake with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him like a ram, chosen from a flock for sacrifice. Ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God, he looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we receive the knowledge of you, and God of the angels, powers in every creature, 
and all of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among the martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have been predestined. Reveal to me now, fulfilled. I praise you for all of these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with him through the Holy Ghost. Be glory now and forever. Amen. Then the fire was lit. The flame blazed furiously. We who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle. And this is why we've been preserved to tell the story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch. Like the sail of a ship filled with the wind and formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Inside it, he did not look like flesh that is burnt, but we smelt a sweet scent like frankincense or some such precious spices. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will not be afraid of what man can do to me. What could they do to Polycarp? They could kill him, but they could not take away from him the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. What can man do to me? He can defame my name. He can beat me. He can jail me. He can kill me but he cannot take away from me the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. What a treasure. What a treasure. We've mentioned before, brothers and sisters, the forces are rising against us. This morning I heard about a Catholic family in West Lansing, Michigan, they have a truck farm, raise vegetables, and for a long time they've taken their vegetables weekly to the farmer's market. A lesbian couple wanted to have a wedding on their farm. They said, no, we can't allow that. That violates God's will. And so the city attorney at Lansing went to court and had them barred from participating from that point on in the farmer's market. And he said... You're no different than the Ku Klux Klan. And it has stood so far. I don't know how high the tide against us will ride in Tulsa or how soon. But don't be surprised when it does. But whatever we're called upon to endure or to suffer... One thing they can't do is take away from us the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we sang, Be Thou My Vision. The last line, heart of my own heart, 
whatever befall, still be my vision, ruler of all. What a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another promise is very relevant to us. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. And you know, as we had so many people calling us this week and say, I'm going to be absent. I was wondering, are going to have two or three here today? <laughs> where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. One of my prayers for our service every Sunday is that our Lord Jesus Christ, in ways we cannot understand, his invisible presence will be so real to us that when we leave this building, we can clearly say, I have been in the presence of God. That's not necessarily through prophecies or anything else, but a sense of his presence. Oh, God, let it be. Let it be. He is present with us in the Lord's Supper. You know, I grew up in a, in a tradition that said really all that is is just a memorial. There's nothing to the fruit of the vine and the bread. It's just a memorial. And for about 30 years, that's the tradition in which I preach. There's so many things in that tradition I've had to disregard because they just don't quite fit the word. After Jesus had fed the 5,000 to escape the crowd, he and the disciples went across the short, small sea to the other side, and crowds followed around, and he said to them, You know, you're not following me because of all the signs you've seen that indicate who I am, but you're just following me because you want more bread. <laughs> and then he gave this sermon concerning the bread of life uh, that they shook their heads about. Let me read this to you. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which come down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread shall live forever. And everybody shook their heads. What is he talking about? <laughs> Some months later, in the upper room prior to his betrayal and crucifixion, our Lord Jesus sat with the apostles they observed the Passover meal. And at one point, he took the unleavened bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave the disciples and said, Take, eat. 
This is my body. Now there are four cups of wine at the Passover meal. The fourth or last called the cup of the blessing. When they got to that one, Jesus took that one and said, Think, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. As I pondered these words, I began to ask myself, if I choose to take that figuratively, what else can I choose to take figuratively? <laughs> In some manner, I believe with all of my heart that when I partake of the loaf and the cup, by faith, I am partaking of the body and blood of our Lord. Dallas and I were talking about this one time. And he said, I believe that it becomes a body and glove as soon as, blood as soon as we put it in our mouth and ingest it. We all have different views, but this is more than just a memorial. We're encountering our Lord Jesus. His abiding presence is with us. Many of you know I prepare communion every Sunday morning except the last Sunday of the month. And I would not expect anybody else to do it the way I do it, but I come early. Often I'm the first one here. The reason I do is because I'm handling unleavened bread, which you and I will receive as the body of Christ, a staggering thought. And I'm preparing cups of fruit of vine, which we will receive as the blood of Jesus, a staggering thought. And I want to be alone and do that solemnly and reverently. As I say, that's for me. And one other reason, kind of a secondary reason, is this as a funerary sense about the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating a death. And when you go to a funeral, you don't sit there and watch the undershake, undertaker dress the body and stick it in the casket. <laughs> You arrive and it's beautifully before you, so it's my desire to have the table at the back. So when you walk in, there's something beautiful to see, a secondary thing. But Christ Jesus' abiding presence is here when we come together and in a special way in the Lord's Supper. This morning at the end of our service, we have the great joy of seeing souls immersed into Jesus Christ. And our Lord is present there too. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, when the people cried out, what shall we do? He said, repent. The Greek word is metanoia. He said this, one you've taken with cruel hands, have crucified God, hath raised up, made him both Lord and King, saying, change your mind about who Jesus is. And then he said, be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, that is the Greek preposition, epsilon noon, in, which means upon his authority, as if he were the one doing it. Isn't that something to think about? But to the apostles, he said, immerse people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speaking of relationship. Now, it's interesting, there's no place in the New Testament that we have a record 
of what was said when people were immersed. Traditionally, people have said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what do we do about Acts 2.38? Bill Sanders is the first man I ever heard, I think, get it right. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That covers it all, doesn't it? And that's exactly right. So Christ is present. When you immerse someone into Jesus, you're doing it as if Christ were doing it. You're to his authority. He is present. And then comes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, Jim Grinnell talked about fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, so on. Ending with self-control. And by the way, it is not fruits are, but it is fruit is, it's singular. And we've illustrated this before. You know, we have a, an apple tree that has red, delicious apples. And the skin is dark red. The inside is white, somewhat soft, quite juicy, a bit sweet. And then you have the Jonathan apple tree. And it produces a different kind of fruit. The fruit is serrated red and white and kind of yellow. Very firm, white on the inside, and tart to taste. You'll never get a red delicious apple off the Jonathan apple tree. You'll never get a Jonathan apple off of the red delicious apple tree. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in us slowly bears fruit over the years and it takes years my father was a born practical joker you never knew what he was going to be up to one time when the kids were small we'd come back from ohio for christmas dinah came down and said there's a woman in granddaddy's bed well he had pulled a joke on the kids he'd gone to a department store and got a mannequin and put it in his bed <laughs> Full of jokes. We had a neighbor two doors from us that planted a pecan tree, watered it, fertilized it, and went to bed. And after dark, my father took a small pail of pecans, slipped over to that man's house, and attached pecans to every little branch. <laughs> my father was a born practical joker. But it takes a while for fruit to come forth. You know, really, the Mississippi short, uh, soft-shell pecan, it takes 10 years for it'll bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit grows gradually within us. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when you're immersed, for some people, it's, there's an immediate something happens. But for many, it's not. It's a gradual awareness of the fact that something is happening inside of you because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and fruit is being born. I came, into, came to Jesus Christ when I was 10 years of age. My dear friend Jimmy Foshi and I came down the aisle together to accept Jesus and immediately we were taken to the baptistry. He went first, I went second. I'll tell you, something happened in that water. I felt as if I were standing in a pool of Alka-Seltzer. It was effervescent. 
And I came out and said to my friend Jimmy, wasn't that water unusual? He said, I didn't notice anything. To this day, I can still remember that. I don't know why, but God seemed to do something special for me when I was immersed into Jesus. And I was serious about my commitment to Christ, but later on in my teens, I kind of strayed, and I had a tremendous problem with anger manifested in many ways. One of Barbara's best friends was Clarine Boyd, and her uncle had a birthday, and so all these teenage girls just, as a prank, ran in and gave him a kiss. I knew that Barbara had kissed that man. I was so angry, I ran four city blocks screaming at the top of my voice, or I had to hit somebody. (laughs) I was angry. I tried to get rid of the anger, and it wouldn't go. And I prayed and prayed, and with it came cursing. But one day as I went to work on the railroad, I noticed I wasn't cursing anymore. And I realized the Holy Spirit had removed that anger. Willpower couldn't do it. It was a divine act of God. And I think most of us here who have walked with God for many years can say, I'm not the person. You know, one advantage of being 88 years old The Holy Spirit has had longer to work on me. I thank God for that. But I think almost everyone here who has walked with Christ for many years can tell you I'm not the person I used to be, not just because I'm old, but on the inside. God has been doing something. And he'll begin doing that work in the lives of those who are immersed this morning. I'm thankful for the abiding presence of Christ. May God's blessing rest upon you.